When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the CLNS Patriots Network. This is the Patriot Nation podcast. We got a special episode for you. I am Matt St. Jean here with Dave Archibald to talk about his new book, The Inches We Need. How you doing, Dave? I'm doing great, Matt. Always awesome to talk to you. Yeah, this is a, it's a great book. You're going to want to go out and get it. It should be out now on Amazon. Uh, and just a reminder, this podcast is presented by FanDuel. Go to, I think, FanDuel.com slash Boston and check that out. Dave, your book, it's called The Inches We Need. It's talking about getting that getting that extra inch to, you know, be a champion to win games in the NFL and, and how important that is. Can you talk about kind of your background and make, what made you want to write this book? Sure. So uh, first of all, the inches we need, uh, I, I would think most of the fan base would know, but it's from the uh, Oliver Stone movie, Any Given Sunday. Al Pacino gives this halftime speech. that uh, says the inches we need, football is a game of inches and the inches we need are everywhere. And we're going to fight for that, for those inches. And when we add up all those inches, that's going to make the difference between winning and losing. And he's talking about the game on the field. But to me, I like the metaphor for off the field, too, because as I study team building, I, I find that there are so many different areas that teams are looking at to try to find that inch, to try to find those advantages. It's like the uh, baseball money ball, but writ large and with 32 teams, and there's no like small market team that has to take the money ball approach. Everyone's got a level playing field with the cap and draft capital. And so they're, they're all trying to find whatever advantages, whatever undervalued assets they can get. Um, yeah. I know you, you talk right off the bat, your, your first paragraph of the book talks about you um, being the kid who'd play you know, the sports video games and you're simming through the games. You want to get to the off season. That's the fun part. <laughs> That's something I can relate to, you know, playing Madden. Yeah, you know, you're trying to nail the drafts. You're trying to to sign for agents. What what games were you were you playing that like came in? My this? my version of this is like even nerdier than you can imagine because I I never had like a like a gaming system that was good enough to run like the top end games. So I was doing stuff like Earl Weaver baseball and like front page sports football, like stuff you've never heard of, I'm sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and yeah, I was, I would just, uh, that was, uh, that was me. I'd, I'd start like, I'm going to play every game this season. And after like five games, I'd be like, all right, this is kind of dull. I'm going to sit. And then I'm in the draft and I'm signing free agents. I'm trading guys away. I'm promoting guys to the, the minor leagues or, or whatever it is. Um, and I, I, when, uh, my wife is in marketing and she asked me like, what's your audience for this book? And I kind of hemmed and hawed my way through the answer. And then I was thinking about it. I was like, you know, it's probably those people like me who are simming through the, uh, <laughs> simming through the video games to get to the off season, to get to the draft, uh, to get to that, that nerdy stuff. Um, and to me, it's kind of, it's kind of funny because 
it makes it sound like I I don't like the game, but I, I love watching it. But to me, like the game itself, I'm just enjoying it. You know, I'm I'm watching it. I'm a fan when it's happening. The analysis comes later, whether that's uh digging into the X's and O's or the off season. When I'm watching the game, I'm just, you know, fanning out. So that's just kind of always been my perspective. I find I personally find that very very relatable. That's kind of how I've always interacted with the game too. And I know you, you gave me a copy of the book here. It's fantastic stuff. And re- literally from the first page, there's there's good stuff here. I think we'll, let's talk about kind of the the first chapter here because I think this really introduces the core concepts you're going to use. Um, the first question I have is you talk about um, how uh, when you were writing for Inside the Pylon you'd want to write articles that were considered evergreen, writing things that would kind of last and how that was something you came into with this book, especially because Moneyball, by, by the time Moneyball, you know, rises into the popularity, the, the core strategies are kind of outdated at that point. People have moved past them. They were good for a time. People adjusted. So how do you write, how do you approach writing a book, trying to have an evergreen strategy for football in a sport that's ever changing? Yeah, I mean that's that's the that's the trick of it, really. And uh, I, I quote Dan, Dan Hatman a lot in the book. And when I I called him to talk about this project, that was kind of he's like, I don't know how you do it because it it changes all, all the time. And I was like, well, that's why I'm relating it to these core concepts that are always true. And I think when you look at Moneyball, it was the idea that we're going to find the undervalued assets, and then the question becomes okay, what are the undervalued assets? And that changes over time. And so uh, some of that applies to this book, but it really comes down to, you know, having a vision, aligning the organization around the vision. And the owner is a big part of that too. And then being different than the other teams. And finally, you have to change and adapt because what worked five years ago might not work now and might not work two years from now or you know, it's constantly moving. And the teams that are constantly searching for that inch, those are the ones who are going to be successful. Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned that that pyramid that you set up. It's a diagram right at the start of the things that you have to do to be a, a competent organization, a good organization, and then one that's, you know, competing and, and contending for championships on a regular basis. I figured it'd be fun to, to look at some of those things through the lens of the Patriots, especially because, over the last two decades, they are the example of how to do this stuff year in and year out. Uh, so I'll, I'll start with the, the very first one you mentioned there, aligning the, the organization. This is part of your, your basic competence level of how to, how to build a football team. Where do you see that in the Patriots? Well, I think the Patriots, it's, it's kind of obvious, which is Bill Belichick runs the show. So he's at the top of the personnel org chart and he's at the top of the coaching org chart. So there's never any disconnect between personnel and coaching because everything rolls up to Bill Belichick at the end of the day. And that's not how most teams do things. And probably there are a number of head coaches that you wouldn't want running personnel, but obviously it's worked great for, for Belichick and, Um, You know, he hasn't batted a thousand on personnel moves over the years. Nobody does. But I think what you can say is that when he gets a player, he knows how to use him. Uh, And that's not true everywhere. And, you know, later in chapter one, I talk about Cal Van Noy as an example of a guy who who didn't work out in Detroit, who 
who went to New England and had success. And obviously there are a number of those players through the years, guys who were misfits in their organizations that come to New England. And because Bill knows exactly what he wants and because he's running the show on both sides, it all works together. Yeah. And I think this is where aligning the organization and having the vision really come together because they, the alignment kind of comes from the structure. I feel like in New England, because you have just one guy who's making all of the final decisions for everything, it kind of comes naturally, um, which, like you said, it, it's not something that's worked everywhere. I think you look at uh, the the Houston Texans under Bill O'Brien as kind of one of the relevant examples or the, the, the Eagles with Chip Kelly. Can, is there a reason why you think, you know, those versions of aligning the vision and having everything come from one man didn't work or did work, has worked in New England? Well, fundamentally, the the general manager is responsible for the long-term vision of the organization. And so in both those examples, you had a coach who was kind of teetering, uh, who'd, who'd been a little bit on the hot seat, and he gets full personnel control. Is he going to make decisions with the long-term interests of the franchise in mind, or is he going to make a decision to save his job for that? for that season. And when you look at those, at those situations, you had, you know, Bill O'Brien, what do you trade two firsts for? That was that year he traded two firsts for Larry Mutansel. And I mean, he wasn't yeah. looking at the, the broader vision. He was just trying to do what he needed to do for, for Sunday. Um, and, and I think that's, that's the risk with the head coach in charge model. I think there are a lot of advantages to it in terms of alignment, but there's definitely a risk that, if, if you don't have a head coach who's capable of stepping back and saying, okay, this is what I need Sunday, but let's not do something that's stupid for two years from now. And I, Belichick obviously stands as someone who's, you know, fairly conservative by GM standards. I mean, he's not, he's been pretty, um, pretty averse to pushing a lot of money into the future. Right now they have almost no long-term financial commitments. He never trades or rarely trades future draft capital and not very much. Um, so with him, it works. But if a head coach is just kind of myopically focused on this Sunday, this year, what he needs to do for his job, that's when you run into trouble with that scheme. And that's where the the owner support, I think, begins to come in too, because I think you see in a lot of ways here, if they, if the GM or the coach is scared for their job, they start thinking about tomorrow and not next week. And then you start getting into issues. I think in new England, you know, you win a super bowl in a year or two, it makes the rest of the stuff a lot easier. Yeah. The owner can get behind anything you do. And it gives you, I think a lot more freedom and flexibility, but owner support is a huge part. I mean, the fish rots from the head, they say, yes. and I think you've seen that around the NFL with certain franchises um, looking at you, Washington, with what's been going on there recently. Um, but when you talk about the Patriots, I think Robert Kraft has been a, a huge part of what's gone on over the last two decades. Absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the things that that I, I think about sometimes is like, what's Bill Belichick's contract? I have, I have no idea. I don't know how long he's signed for. I don't know how much money he makes. Like, it just kind of just gets taken care of. And that's what a good owner does for you. All those things just kind of get taken care of. I mean, obviously, they stepped in in more public ways at times, like when he lured uh, Josh McDaniels from taking the Colts job or uh, Gerard Mayo this past offseason. 
you know, whenever Brady had his contract up. But mostly Kraft has let Belichick run the show and just kind of taking care of all the stuff that um, that needed to get taken care of. And in a lot of time, I mean, it's kind of silly to say the owner is a thankless job. He gets the like billions, <laughs> billions of dollars. But like, I think Kraft maybe doesn't get enough credit as kind of the third um, third point of that triangle with Brady and Belichick. Well, it's an area where, you know, the owner is rarely going to be responsible for wins on the field, but they can absolutely be responsible for losses by messing things up and good owners stay out of the way and let people kind of do their jobs and you have to have a certain amount of faith, which go back to when Bill Belichick was hired and the whole, you know, shopping for the groceries and all that stuff. Um, you see all three core principles kind of come through in that moment. We're going to have one coach and GM who's got one vision with the owner behind him. Um, and that right. has stayed true, I think, ever since. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So you go up to the, the second level of the pyramid. Uh, to be good to great, you have to be unique. And I think this is one of those things that sounds super simple on paper, but in practice is incredibly difficult. And I think the Patriots have been unique in – four or five, six different ways at points over the last quarter century here. Uh, how, how would you even define being unique on the football field? Yeah, that, yeah. that's a good question. I think um, with the Patriots, it gets a little difficult not to kind of jump ahead and blur this with the, the next core principle we're going to talk about, the, the change and adapt one. But I, I think the idea is that you have to go into – you have to not be afraid to to look silly because whenever you are an outlier, you're doing something different than other teams. People are gonna gonna look at you and say, "Bill Belichick is arrogant. Why doesn't he just do the things the same way as everybody else? Why doesn't he just run the Cal Shanahan system? Why doesn't he just trade for a, a wide receiver? Um, you know, draft whatever." And I think you have to have the guts to say you know what, if we try to do things, I I mean, in a way, there's a lot of humility to being unique because you're saying, if we try to do things the same way that everybody else is doing it, we have to be better than them to be more successful or we have to be luckier. Whereas if we take a different approach, if we take a different strategy, we can be successful without necessarily being smarter, without necessarily being luckier. And um, I think it's in that Be Unique section he talks about when he started with the Patriots in 2000, there were only two teams running the 3-4. It was them and the Steelers. And so if they wanted a nose tackle, it was easy to get a nose tackle. It was inexpensive to get a nose tackle. And a lot of times those guys were like kind of cast-offs because they were miscast in 4-3 systems or uh, the 3-4 outside linebackers. I mean, they got Mike Vrabel, um, I already talked about Cal Van Noy. Uh, Rob Ninkovich was another guy like that. Um, and so if you're running a different system than other teams, there are going to be guys that fit your system better than others. But, you know, if your scheme is successful, eventually other teams are going to start copying it. And now you're going to be competing for a lot more teams for the same kind of players. And that, that brings us to the next level of the pyramid. Yeah, the change and adapt part. And it to me, it feels like the NFL is kind of 
it's cyclical, it's copycat. Everybody's chasing after whatever the hot thing is. So it feels like whenever a team gets one of those advantages, they are unique in a way that works out for you. Um, everybody chases it, and the team that was ahead gets thrown back into the cycle, and you have to do it again. So I guess it's this part is how do you repeat that process? How do you change and adapt and be unique time and time and time again? And um, this is where it gets tricky, right? Because how can you change and adapt and have a vision? And I think this is kind of the core of why the Patriots have been so successful, because I think in the Patriots case, their vision has the change and adaptation built in. Because unlike most of the other great coaches, like when you think of, you know, Bill Walsh, you think of that kind of, quote, West Coast passing offense with the short passes or you think of like Joe Gibbs with their counter runs or, um, you know, Belichick is not really synonymous with a particular offensive or defensive scheme, even though he's readily acknowledged as one of the great defensive coaches of all time. Uh, and I think the reason for that is because fundamentally the Patriots are a game plan team. That's what they do. They game plan and they believe in game planning on both sides of the football. They analyze the opponent. Uh, you know, Belichick's dad was a, they didn't say pro scout, I guess, because he was in college, but he was, you know, he's an advanced scout. And so he's analyzing the weaknesses of the upcoming opponents. And then you figure out from there, okay, there, there you get a backup right guard. How do we attack that? Oh, they're really good at passing deep. How do we defend that? Whatever it is. And the Patriots want to be able to change what they do week to week to uh, attack the weakness or, or defend the strength of the opposing team. And that's different than, you know, like a Cal Shanahan offense where it's like, okay, we do outside zone and we're going to do other stuff, but everything is predicated on our core outside zone. The Patriots core is game planning and that influences their personnel too, because to game plan like that, you need smart players who can handle the fact that the game plan is, is going to change week to week. You need versatile players so that guys can play different roles week to week. You need available players because if guys, you know, you see some of these teams where the, the veterans get like practice rest days every week and they're not practicing. Like the Patriots have rarely done that because they need the guys practicing. There's a new game plan this week we got to install this stuff. And, um, and you need some humility, too, because part of that scheme is going to be that some guys' roles are going to be bigger or smaller, depending on the week. Um, so I think that's where you see the Patriots' ability to change and adapt, because suddenly the, overar the overarching scheme idea of game planning, that always applies but now it's, you know, we're looking for a little different pieces for the kind of offenses we're facing or the kind of defenses we're facing. But we're always looking for these versatile guys, these smart guys, these guys that fit our vision. And because we have change and adaptation built into the system, that's where we have the ability to, um, to pivot as the league shifts in the way that some other dynasties or would-be dynasties haven't as successfully. Well, and you mentioned Kyle Van Noy in there. Would you say that having a system 
like that with the, the change built into it, does it allow you to extract extra value out of players who are undervalued in some places because you are willing to shift what you do to fit what they can bring to your team? Well, I don't know that they changed what they do to fit Kyle Van Noy, but I do think he's someone who fit their scheme better because uh, he got drafted into a 4-3 Lions team. And he's not really a 4-3 outside linebacker. He's a he's a guy who, at his best, and I, I have an anecdote there about the poinsettia bowl, which is a, a bowl game he played in college where he made a bunch of crazy plays and in a lot of different ways. Um, at his best, he does a bunch of different things for you. You know, he can do some coverage. He can do some pass rush. He can do, you know, run fits. He can, uh, you know, chuck crossers. He can do uh, several different things. And if you don't know what he's going to do, it's it's pretty, you know, it's something that you have to worry about as an offense. But if you put him in a in a role where you're asking him to do the same thing a lot of the time, He's not as effective because he's not really like he's not really built like a every down edge rusher. He's not really uh, a great enough athlete to be like a coverage player all the time. But if you have a system that kind of lets him do a little bit of a bunch of different things, that's where he excels. And I I think the Patriots have had a lot of success with those kinds of linebackers um, specifically and, you know, those kind of players in in some ways. And it goes back to you know, the, the kind of system that they want to run. They don't want to do the same thing all the time. They want to, to be able to game plan. And sometimes that means changing what guys do game to game. And sometimes it means changing what they do snap to snap when they have some of these guys. Yeah. Well, I think the, the other example of something like this that kind of comes to mind is bringing in like Wes Welker in 2007 and changing what you do on offense. Cause you, you had a guy and you had to defend him when you saw how hard he was to cover. And you said, hey, if we take this, we mix it some of the other things we can do and, and add some new things into the mix, we can make this better than it, it was before. I think that's kind of been a stable. I, don't know, I feel like there's a, a longstanding thing here with the Patriots. that They'll, they'll take some some cast off from somewhere else, get, the, get a career year out of them, and then they'll go to another location and a place that doesn't have the vision and isn't willing to change. And that player will go get paid and not be as high quality guy in the next place. Yeah. Yeah. You, you definitely see that a lot. And Welker, I think that was an advantage they had for a long time was the slot receiver has generally been the focal point of the passing offense. And traditionally those guys have, uh, have been underpaid. And I, I think we're, we're seeing that shift a little now. And that's, I think, part of why the offense hasn't been as strong the last few years, because it's been harder to get those guys inexpensively. Yeah, that's a, that's a great segue. We're going to talk about you know the, the current Patriots, the offense, the defense, the special teams through the lens of some of the stuff you talk about in your book and, you know, a couple other things going on around the NFL uh, after this word from our sponsor. Get ready for the NFL season with incredible offers from FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers can bet $5 and get 200 in bonus bets guaranteed. Plus, all customers who bet $5 will get $100 off NFL Sunday ticket from YouTube and YouTube TV. Now is the best time to join FanDuel. The app is easy to use, and you can bet on everything from spreads to player props and more. Go visit FanDuel.com Boston and kick off the NFL season with an offer you don't want to miss. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. 
Ages 21 and up in present Massachusetts. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Hope is here. Gambling helpline ma.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support. Play it smart from the start. GameSenseMA.com or call 1-800-GAM-1234. NFL Sunday ticket offer ends 9-18-23. No refunds. Terms and embargoes apply. $100 off NFL Sunday ticket, not YouTube TV. YouTube TV base plan required to watch YouTube TV. Redemption requires a Google account and current form of payment. Commercial use excluded. Subscription renews. Cancel anytime. Welcome back. I'm here with Dave Archibald. Let's get into the, the current Patriots. You mentioned slot receiver and the offense before, and I think that's probably the perfect spot to start here on the offense. Just talk about it briefly. Uh, from my perspective, I think we've kind of seen them shift from some of the smaller, shiftier guys in the slot to some bigger slots in recent years. You know, Nikhil Harry, I think they wanted to play that role. Jacoby Myers was kind of that type of player. Juju Smith-Schuster, this free agency. They also draft a shifty guy in Demario Douglas. Uh, do you think that's a reflection of changing values there, or is that just the guys they happen to sign? Well, I, I think that's interesting. I I do think it was a reflection of, um, of shifting values. I think you saw them kind of trying to put together like a bully ball offense. Um, you know, we they signed two tight ends to big money. They drafted guys like Harry and they picked up Myers. I mean, they had a really big group of skill players. And of course, they generally had those big kind of running backs too, like Damian Harris and Ramondre Stevenson, LeGarrette Blunt. you know, if you go back a little bit. So I, I kind of looked at that and thought they're, they're putting together an offense that they want to like run the ball first and kind of have the passing game keyed off that. But you know, with Bill O'Brien coming back, uh, he may be, I, I don't know whether they're staying on that track or maybe he's bringing some more of those spread concepts that um, he'd been running in Alabama that that Mac is familiar with from those days. So honestly, that's something where I'm kind of curious to see how it's going to play out because I'm not sure, um, you know, I think some of the personnel they have now is kind of a relic of the previous strategy. And I'm not sure whether they're continuing on that path with O'Brien or if they're shifting gears a little bit. And it might take some time to see that play out in terms of uh, what kind of personnel they assemble on the offensive side. Uh, With the offense, there's there's the offensive line. Uh, I know a lot has been made in the last couple weeks and months of what the Patriots did at offensive tackle. I'm curious to get your thoughts on, you know, going with the the signing signing three mediocre guys instead of throwing a lot of money at, at one player type of strategy. Well, I think, you know, this is kind of a multi-year issue. I think, I think like if you asked them 18 months ago, they'd say that Isaiah Wynn is going to be uh, one of our tackles. And they, they picked up the fifth-year option there, and obviously that didn't work out. He got hurt again, and he was ineffective last year when he did play. So I think that left them scrambling a little bit and facing this off season, you had the option of overpaying, you know, pretty average players, giving them top of the market contracts. So that's Orlando Brown or um, uh, Caleb McGarry, or now I'm blanking. Mike McGlinchey. Mike Mike McGlinchey. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, so you could pay those guys kind of top of market contract in a, you know, an extensive, uh, guaranteed money and 
year's commitment, or they had the option to try to, you know, go inexpensive and just get by with some depth pieces. And I, I do think they needed depth. I think uh, depth is kind of an underrated issue with last year's offense. Um, the couple games that David Andrews missed, those were two of the worst games that the offensive line played. Uh, you know, when Win went down and they were kind of cycling through Marcus Cannon before they got to Connor McDermott kind of settled that group a little bit. I, I think you had, and and also the other thing that happened in there was Trent Brown got sick and he didn't end yeah. up missing a game, but he was clearly not a hundred percent. You had to think if they had better tackle depth, he either wouldn't have played or he would have um, rotated um, to give him more of a breather. So they did need to address depth. And I think they just kind of decided to try to get by for this year. Um, you know, this is a team that was sub 500 last year. You can't address every issue in one off season. So I, I think what they did was reasonable, but at the same time, it, you know, it, it might hurt the offense a lot this year. And I think that's why you saw them uh, try to get a couple more options last minute last week and Bedarian Lowe and Tyrone Wheatley Jr. Um, are they going to find a solution between those guys and Calvin Anderson and, and Riley Reef when he's healthy and uh, City? So, uh, you know, I don't know. It's it's the uh, you, have you seen the movie Clueless? I have not. I'm uncultured, Dave. There's <laughs> a part there's a part in Clueless where he's yelling at his his daughter for uh, driving with her friend, and he says, two permits do not equal a license." So, I, you know, it's it's kind of yeah. a two permits equal a license approach to right tackle uh, staffing. And, you know, we'll see how it works out. Uh, shifting away from the Patriots just for a second here, I'm going to bring this back, but I think one of the big stories around the NFL in the last two, three weeks here has been the Jonathan Taylor situation in Indianapolis. Um, and I know you, you talked in your book about the value of running backs and how much individual running back may or may not matter to winning football games. I know this has been a highly contentious point between, I think, fans and analysts. I think there's a lot of disagreement there between those two groups of how valuable running backs are. What What is your take on, on what's going on in Indianapolis, and would you pay Jonathan Taylor a, a hefty contract? Well, I think abstractly with running back value, there's kind of four things. One is, historically, it was a glamour position. So, you know, people of that perspective on it. Two is, as we research the game more, we find that, and as, you know, the game changes, passing is king and the running game has been devalued. And so running backs are taking a hit there. Um, the third thing, I think there's a lot of uh, the running backs don't matter stuff is unfair because I think it could apply to all positions, all non-quarterback positions on the field. Um, you know, people say, oh, you can get a running back anywhere. It's like, well, you can find, you know, UDFA cornerbacks too, or, or wide receivers. In fact, those are two of the more common positions to find productive UDFA players. Um, so I think, I think a lot of the specific criticism of running backs is kind of unfair, but the fourth factor, and I think probably the biggest one with respect to the Jonathan Taylor situation and also you know, the stuff we saw earlier in the offseason with um, Josh Jacobs and uh, Saquon Barkley is 
it's tough to re-sign running backs because they contribute of all the positions on the field, the running backs, the most of the value they contribute is going to be before they get to 25. The highest percentage of value they generate is before the age of 25 and also the lowest percentage of value after 30. And so through that lens, it's just really hard to sign a running back to a significant contract. Even when a running back has been great as Jonathan Taylor has been, it's it's just a bad bet. And we see that. I mean, the Patriots picked up Ezekiel Elliott for, for a song. I mean, Ezekiel Elliott was a great player when Dallas re-signed him at the age of, what, 24, 25. And now he's 28 and he's, uh, you know, he was on the street a month ago. So I think, you know, it's it's tough. I can sympathize with Taylor wanting to get paid. And I think he wants to get paid for the same reason the Colts don't want to pay him. It's it's tough to be a running back. It's a short-lived profession. But at the same time, I, I understand why Indianapolis doesn't want to do it because it, the the payoff just isn't there. It's a position where people decline fast. And a lot of times the best years are on the rookie deals. And I, one thing I do find funny about the coverage around it too is that I think, you know, when when Ezekiel Elliott, they, they sign him to that massive deal and then it doesn't pan out in the end, a lot of the media attention goes to well, why would the Cowboys give him that contract? We all know what happens with running backs. But then you know, a month later, you see what's going on in Indianapolis and the media coverage comes down to well, why won't you pay him? You have to keep him. Uh, and I think uh, you mentioned the, the glamour position of running back. I think that's part of it, too. I think the glamour today is in fantasy football. It, it still exists. It's just different than it was in the 70s, 80s, 90s. It's uh, running back's the spot that gets you 20 points a week in your fantasy football team and is the most valuable spot. And it, it isn't that way in the real game. And I think there's a, a disconnect there for fans. But bringing this back to the Patriots, they're relying a lot on a running back this year to be a key part of their offense. And Ramondre Stevenson one who's going to be up for a new contract in not too long here. So if you're the Patriots, how would you approach the situation, especially because you just had two running backs you drafted last year end up off the roster? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it's the same situation. I think it's difficult to re-sign Ramondre Stevenson because as great as he is, you don't know what he's what he's going to look like three, four years from now. Um, so I, I think it made sense to draft a couple guys last year. I kind of thought they might add to that stable this season. Um, they didn't even add a UDFA running back this, this off season. I don't think. Um, was CJ Maribola a rookie? I don't, I, I don't, he was an I don't think guy, so. I think. Yeah. So I, I kind of thought they might, but so I, I think that's part of the approach. Um, something else I've noticed that's interesting about the Patriots running backs is, they tend to draft guys who have been in timeshares in college and in a lot of cases, notable timeshares. I mean, uh, uh, Damian Harris played with Josh Jacobs and, um, you know, I, I'm blanking on Sony Michelle with Nick Chubb, Sony Michelle with Nick Chubb. Um, uh, Lawrence Maroney played with Marion Barber, the third, uh, James White played with Melvin Gordon at, as Wisconsin. I mean, so a lot of these guys were even like the lesser half of these. I think um, um, Shane Vereen played with Javid Best, maybe. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, like, so they come into the league maybe with a little more tread on the tires than some of 
some of these running backs that have gotten uh, chewed up and spit out a little bit in the college game. Uh, so maybe that's an argument for Stevenson having a little more shelf life going into his late 20s than a typical running back, um, just based on having been uh, having been in a shared backfield at Oklahoma and also not not really getting a ton of carries uh, so far relative to some of these other bell cow backs. Um, and I wonder if signing Zeke is maybe uh, a step in that direction too. Like maybe this guy can be our five-year solution at running back if we manage his pitch count a little better than some of these other teams with star running backs have been doing. Well, and I think if you're New England, you don't mind setting, sending Ezekiel Elliott in for those high-impact hits uh, you know, you can have him pass protect and, and save Ramondre Stevenson from some physicality there. You can send him in when you need one yard. You just need him to run into somebody full full steam, and that'll save Stevenson's legs, hopefully, a little bit. Uh, one more thing on running back, and then we'll move off it. Uh, you had, and this isn't even just running back. This is a non-quarterback thing, and you touched on this before, but I want to come back. You'd mentioned in the book that I think there were only six non-quarterbacks who had any significant impact on was it betting lines in the yeah, NFL. That was as of 2016. I haven't seen a more updated um, stat on that. So maybe Vegas mm-hmm. is caught on a little bit, but I think the general point holds like the quarterback is the, um, is the straw that stirs the drink to use Reggie Jackson's old phrase. And uh, everyone else is just kind of along for the ride. I, I think um you know, Chase Stewart kind of crunched the math on this a little while ago. It's like, if you have a football perspective, if you haven't uh, read that website, it's a terrific site. Um, if you say the quarterback is worth twice as much as, or I think it was like half of the total value of the offense. And then the other 21 positions are on, on the field are, um, are all equal, then all the other positions are worth like two or 3% of, of the value of what's happening on the field. So through that, like, yeah, running back might be like two or 3%, but like, so is everybody. (laughs) So I I think that's where you get to kind of where, where I feel like some of the, some of the criticism of running back specifically, I think can generally be applied to, um, a lot of different positions on the field, I think. Um, and, and I think we're starting to see that in contract value. Some of the quarterback contracts are taking up a much higher percentage of the cap than we've ever seen before. And it really isn't stopping those teams from being competitive. Um, Mahomes sure. set a record this year for the highest percentage of a cap. Uh, and if you count Jared Goff's dead money last year, the Rams would have set a record then on the highest percentage of, uh, of cap taken up by the quarterback. So I think we're entering a world where the quarterback prices are starting to go up commensurate with their impact and everyone else is, uh, is going to get a little bit less of the pie. So do you, with that in mind, do you think that kind of non quarterback drafts, free agency trade moves probably get a disproportionate amount of coverage and hype compared to the amount of impact they'll have on the field? Well, not, I mean, I think the skill position ones probably do and then probably not, you know, nobody's like that that excited about guard signing. So they're probably not getting <laughs> disproportionate or, or special teamers or something. So but I think certainly the other skill, you know, the the receivers and the running backs are still getting a lot of attention that I, I think maybe is not um 
commensurate with the impact. Let's uh, let's jump over to the defensive side of the ball here. Um, and we're talking about, you know, weighing impacts in different spots on the field. I think the big overarching debate on defense is pass rush versus coverage when you're trying to stop opposing offenses. Um, you kind of, uh, you, you talk about how there's different schools of thoughts here and which one's more valuable. Typically, I think coverage is where people land. Bill Belichick, you know, says all of it matters. But this New England offseason, you know, you draft three corners in the last two years and a bunch of safeties, too. Um, do you think that there is kind of a, a leaning into the coverage aspect as a primary part? Or do you think they just think that they need more players there? Well, I think with the Patriots specifically, a lot of it is about undervalued assets. Like they're picking typically in the at the end of the first round. And if you're looking for a star edge rusher, that that position group is usually pretty picked over in the draft. You're you're looking at guys who have pretty significant warts. I think um the only edge rusher the Patriots have drafted in the first round is Chandler Jones. And he was a guy who had who let a lot of length, but I think he only had like four and a half sacks his last year at Syracuse. I mean, he wasn't like a big producer. He's also not your kind of traditional uh, edge bender type uh, edge rusher speed guy. He's, he's more of like a big physical guy with technique. Um, so I, I think the Patriots have, have settled on for them. It makes more sense to invest in the secondary and then try to uh, figure out ways to get enough production out of the pass rush. And they've done that in different ways. I mean, the early parts of the dynasty, you had those great interior lines, those like three, four ends, like Richard Seymour and, uh, and Ty Warren and those guys. And then I think you saw a lot of, um, I, I talked a little bit about Kyle Van Noy. Uh, you had, some of those years you had different combinations of Dante Hightower, Kyle Van Noy, and Jamie Collins, where you created a lot of pass rush because offenses didn't know where the rush was going to come from. Like all those guys could rush and um, you never know who, who was dropping into coverage and who was coming on the pass rush in a, in a given play. I think lately the formula has been um, more power edges Uh Matt Judon is kind of in that mold. Um, Trey Flowers is kind of in that mold. And uh, I think Keon White this year and uh, even Ronnie Perkins, who just got cut, but he was a fairly high draft pick. I think with the exception of Josh Uche, they're mostly not looking for those like twitched up guys. It's a lot of like strong guys who can collapse the pocket in different ways where it's maybe a little bit different skill set than other teams are looking for, and you can maybe get some value there that um, other teams aren't looking for. So uh, to me, I don't know that it's Belichick thinks coverage is more important so much as um, I think it's where it's made more sense to invest their resources just on the kind of players that have been available to them. And, uh, and that's what we're seeing is kind of the product of, uh, of that philosophy of building the defense. So going forward, then, I think you mentioned Josh Uche in there, Anthony Jennings, too. I think he's more on the power side of guys. Mm-hmm. Um, both of those guys are up for free agency at the end of this year. With what you know about the Patriots and building a team, do you think they resign them? And do you think it would be a good idea to resign them? 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's a tough question because they really haven't been re-signing as many guys lately. I think if you look back, you know, 10, 15 years ago, they, uh, they re-signed Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez after year two. You're not even allowed to do that anymore. Um, now you have to wait three years. And when you have to wait three years and rookies hit free agency after year four, it used to be you could sign up to like six-year contracts as rookies. Um, you know, they only have to slide through one year before they hit free agency. So I think players know that, agents know that. And I think it's hard to get those kind of uh, hometown discount type deals. Like, I mean, the Patriots, Gronk was one of the great values in the whole sport for a long time. Uh, And so I think what we've seen is the Patriots only re-signing guys who are willing to take a little bit of a discount. They got one with Shaq Mason for a while uh, or, or guys who are kind of in that like next tier down, like Juwan Bentley or Jonathan Jones, they, they keep bringing back. And so as you face this off season, and, and I think Anthony Jennings is very much in that mold. And so it'd be, you know, not at all surprising to see like a, a modest deal for Anthony Jennings. I think when you look at Uche and um, you didn't mention them, but obviously uh, you, you mentioned to me by email earlier, uh, Cal Duggar and Michael Onwenu, who were, you know, at the top of their positions uh, and, you know, contracts that are probably going to be eight figures. It's a little harder to see what they're what they're going to do. Um, The last like great offensive player they drafted, uh, Joe Tooney, ended up walking in free agency. So if Joe Tooney walks, does that mean like who are they going to resign if they're going to let Joe Tooney go, it's uh, it's kind of tough. On the other hand, they do have a ton of money to spend. I mean, they're they have like uh, one of the highest cap figures for 2024 and 2025. They have almost no long term financial outlay. Yeah, I think over as of today and over the cap, it's like 116 million dollars for next offseason at this point. Which you mentioned, you know, haven't re-signed any offensive guys in a while. If you're not re-signing your talent, that's how you end up with those huge. Uh, amounts of cap space and yeah and and the thing i will say in favor of them resigning or with an idea that they might resign on wenu and duggar especially is while those guys might sign deals that are at the top of those positional markets those are positional markets that are lower tier than some of the more expensive markets so you're talking about a guard and a safety they're going to make a lot less than like your top offensive tackle or your top you know, wide receiver or cornerback or something. So maybe they're willing to go to the tops of those markets. I mean, they did it for Devin McCourty. Um, they did it for Logan Mankins. I, I don't think, you know, Duggar or um, Unwenu are in those stratospheres. But I think those are positional markets where they're more likely to bring guys back, which is why I think when you look at Uche, it gets a little more difficult because that tends to be a positional market where, guys get paid more than the Patriots are typically willing to to go. And obviously he's difficult here because his best production came in a short window at the end of last season. And it, it's tough to even project that forward right now. I think it's tough to assign a value to him at all for, for those contract negotiations. I know we're, we're over 45 minutes here. So we're going to wrap up with two, two last bits. Um, first thing we'll, we'll, we got to touch on special teams here. And I did think it's interesting. You talk about this at the end of your book, how, uh, what, 20% of 
of the the value in a football game or the, the ability to win a game comes from special teams, but it makes up less than 20% of the plays. So each special teams play is worth more. Do I have that right? That that was the analysis that Brian Burke did. I, I'm trying to remember exactly which year that was offhand. So that might've been before some of the current rules changes. So maybe it's gone down a little bit since then, but I definitely think your average fan doesn't give special teams enough credit for how much it can swing games. Uh, and we've seen that in the positive direction for the Patriots many times over the years. And last year we saw it in the negative direction a couple times with um, a couple games they lost on big kickoffs. Yeah, you only have to go back one real game to, to figure out where that, that bit the Patriots. And you see them attack it this offseason. Kicker, punter in the draft, Amir Speed, who stepped in as a starter on special teams right away. Kind of projecting into the future, do you think it will continue to be disproportionately valuable to the number of plays on the field? Do you think it's good to keep investing draft picks there and roster spots there, or is this going to diminish over time? I, I think it's hard to predict how much the like kind of coverage and return roles are going to diminish. But I think one thing that was interesting as I worked through it is I don't think these rule changes diminish the importance of the specialists, especially the kicker and punter, um, because more of the kicking game is uh, hitting those 50 plus yard field goals. That's on like a, a significant upward trend over the years. And so those big leg kickers who can hit those long field goals, I mean, those are points right there. And the other thing is, even with the rules that make touchbacks easier, you still need uh, a kickoff guy who can take advantage of it. And I think that's where Nick Folk was at a big disadvantage this preseason because the, the average team uh, was about 60% on touchbacks last year. Nick Folk, 9%. He had three touchbacks on, I think it was 33 uh, kickoffs. And, and obviously we saw some of those come back. So that's the thing. It's like, oh, you, you don't, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, you don't need to worry about, you know, coverage guys or return guys. Well, that's only true if you have the kicker and the punter who can neutralize those guys. If you don't have the kicker and the punter, all that stuff starts to become pretty important. And um that's where I think you see the Patriots investing in those specialists because they needed to get more out of those positions than they got last year. And uh, that's kind of the key to unlocking the value in these rules changes. Yeah, bring up touchbacks too. That's a great point. Huge part of point of emphasis, I think, for the Patriots this offseason. Hopefully we'll see that actually pan out and help them during the season. My last question for you. You did a ton of research writing this book. Uh, there's a lot of you quoting from a ton of different sources in there. Um, modern stuff, old stuff, putting things together. I'm sure you came into this with your own priors, your own preconceptions about what makes a good football team, what makes good strategy. Was there anything you came into this this process with that you did the research and, and changed your mind on something or learned something new that really shocked you? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there was a lot of that stuff. I think, you know, coming into this process as a Patriots fan, I think it's easy to be like, and obviously the success the Patriots have had, it's easy to think like, oh, well, the Patriots have the right way of doing things. And anyone who's not doing things the way the Patriots do is, is doing something wrong. Uh, and 
a that's not adhering to the core principles that you know we talked about uh, earlier in this podcast. But B, as I as I dug in on some of these teams, I, I think the Rams were a really good example because I I looked at um, at the way they do things for uh, a section that I think appears in Chapter Five on the draft, and um, you know the Rams are really aggressive about pushing money to the future in the ways that the Patriots have rarely done. They've been very aggressive about trading first round picks in a way that the Patriots haven't done uh, to take it on these huge dead money hits. And I think like before digging in, I was like, well, they did a bunch of dumb stuff and they got lucky. But when you when you dig into it, you realize like there's a method to the madness. Uh, I mean, there are ways I think probably they still got lucky with injury a couple of those years. But I think they had a they had a defined plan for how they were going to use these star players they did some math on the value that they expected to get out of those first round picks that they traded away and decided it, it um, you know, it was going to pay off making those moves for veterans instead. They had a, uh, they did a great job, even though they didn't have a lot of draft capital, they made a lot of picks. So it'd be like pretty often you'd see like they had no picks in the first two rounds and then made like 11 picks on uh, you know, the end of round three and and on day three. And uh, I think they did a good job turning those into players and knowing what players they wanted to get to complement the star players that they'd already obtained. And so I think when you add it all together, you see like, okay, they're doing things very differently than the Patriots did it, but there's still a vision. There's still alignment. They're still being unique and they're still uh, changing and adapting. And so it's a great example of how those core principles can apply to the Rams who are doing things in a very different way than the Patriots, but they're both kind of following the, the core principles of, of the book. Well, that's, a, that's a great way to, to leave it here. Thanks for coming on, Dave. Uh, let people know, uh, where can they find you? Where can they find this book? Sure. So uh, the website for the book is theincheswenead.com. That is a link to the pre-order on Amazon. Uh, Kindle should be up by the time this comes out. And I, I, the paperback either will be or it's within a couple of days. Uh, my Twitter handle, I think it's on there. It's at Dave Archie. And uh, so you can see all my musings there and any future projects. Definitely, definitely go check it out. Lots of great stuff in there. I'm going to be sifting through this, I think, all season, looking at what's going on in the NFL. And, you know, you mentioned the non-Patriot stuff. You got stuff on all 32 teams in this book at some point. So you can see it from multiple angles. I know this is a Patriots podcast. You can see some of this stuff and the way it works in other organizations, which is very interesting. Thanks again for uh, for coming on, Dave. Uh, definitely go buy that. And we, we will see you next time.